Well, as I mentioned, uh, today we're going to be celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper, and uh, we do that here at Plum Creek Chapel uh, once a month, and uh, on the fifth Sunday of the month, we really try to kind of zero in and focus on it. It's something that the Lord commanded uh, that we do until He comes, and uh, so we, uh, for 2,000 years, the church has been uh, celebrating this uh, ordinance. Uh, some churches call it communion or the Lord's Supper, but uh, it's a great reminder uh, of what the Lord did for us. And so today I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. You know, the last time we had a special emphasis, uh, Lord's Supper Sunday, we focused on the blood, the cup, and we talked about the thread, the, the crimson thread of redemption. And uh, we traced uh, the, the atoning work of the blood from Genesis to Revelation in Scripture. But today I want us to focus on the other element, and that is the bread, which of course represents Christ's body. And I want to basically start by having you think about what is the significance of Christ's bodily sacrifice. In other words, why in God's divine plan did he designate two components for us to, that, that both point, of course, to the cross, the atoning work of Calvary on the cross, for us to remember? Uh, and in Scripture, we do see a significance of both the blood and the body. Why did uh, Christ have to lay down his physical body on the altar of the cross? And so to answer that, I want to turn to a pretty familiar passage uh, of Scripture. In fact, if you've been at Plum Creek very long, we spent the better part of a year going verse by verse through Hebrews a couple of years ago. And uh, before we get to our focal passage in chapter 10, let me take a moment just to contextualize what's going on in this great letter. So some of the unique things about uh, Hebrews, first of all, it's an anonymous letter. Uh, many uh, scholars think the Apostle Paul wrote it. I tend to believe uh, that he did, but from as far as the biblical record is concerned, it's anonymous. So we'll have to wait till we get to heaven to find out for sure who wrote it. But whoever wrote it, it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obviously for the edification of the body. It was written in the late 60s AD. So if you Think about the early church, and of course we're going through a history of the early church in our normal Sunday morning series in the book of Acts. We know the church was founded in 33 AD, so now we're talking three decades later and, and change. And so it's 66, 67, 68 AD, sometime in that time frame. By now the church has spread uh, westward. Paul has taken his three missionary journeys uh, the church is really beginning to expand. The Lord is adding to the number many who are getting saved, Jew and Gentile alike. Um, but also at the same time, as the church was expanding, you see persecution increasing. And so especially by the time you get to the late 60s, Nero is the uh, tyrannical leader of Rome. He's beheading Christians. He's burning them at the stake. And they were facing some pretty di dire circumstances. Um, the unbelieving Jews in Israel were still working in tandem with the Roman government. And as Rome was beginning to sort of uh, collapse and, and come apart a bit, they were blaming the Christians uh, for, uh, for upsetting the, the, the peace of Rome. The Pax Romana is what they called it in, in Latin. And uh, so the, the Christians were really becoming the scapegoat. Uh, if you were a Jew and, and participating in the Ju Judaistic customs and traditions and feasts and festivals, which we're going to talk about today, then, you know, Rome sort of left you alone. 
uh, and many of the Jewish political leaders were sellouts to Rome. But if you were a Christian, if you were a follower of Christ, and remember as we talked about a few weeks ago, the, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, which is where Paul and Barnabas left uh, to start their first missionary journey. And we talked about that last week. But if you were part of that group, you were in trouble. So what was happening was many believers among the Jews, remember you had unbelieving Jews and believers, those who believed that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for their sins and was their Savior. Believing Jews in the church, because of the pressure, because of the intense persecution, were actually abandoning their association with the church and reverting back to Judaism so as to save their lives, basically, or their family's life. And, of course, if they did that, that was a very, uh, you know, shameful thing to do. Uh, but it did not have any impact on their eternal destiny. Jesus gives you eternal life the moment you believe the gospel. You don't have to, you know, keep on uh, following him and behaving well and performing well and doing good works until you die to get to heaven. Otherwise, that would mean that what Jesus really gave you when you believed was the potential for eternal life or the possibility of eternal life. But you have to wait and see. And and the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that eternal life is a present possession absolutely unrelated to our behavior. Uh, we're not saved by works and we can't become unsaved by works. So this wasn't an issue of the eternal destiny of these believers. But the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians to, first of all, warn them about you know the consequences of departing from Christianity, which included... You know, discipline of the Lord, loss of blessings, or all kinds of things that, you know, that, that really don't make sense for a believer to abandon the faith. And yet, by the way, we, 2,000 years later, we still have this happening. We, this letter is as relevant today as it was when it was written because many believers today, for one reason or another, end up being sidelined or shipwrecked on the, on the road of, of, of Christianity. They, something happens, they get angry at God, they shake their fist heavenward, and they say, I'm done. And uh, the Bible calls that apostasy. And that's a, not a good place to be, but it doesn't affect your eternal destiny. Uh, because thankfully, our eternal destiny is based upon the promise of Christ, who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. So if you're here today and you're trying to hang on to the hope of heaven based on your behavior, you need to stop it. You need to let go and stop trying to prove yourself to God. And, and it's really a, an offense to a holy God who says, Whoever believes in me has everlasting life. And essentially, when we think we, we can somehow lose it, we're basically saying, God, I don't believe you. I think you're a liar. I don't think you really meant you gave me eternal life. Uh, so this is very practical for today because there are consequences, practical consequences, even consequences in terms of rewards at the beam of judgment someday in eternity, but nothing to do with eternal life. And many people misunderstand Hebrews because they come to some of these really strong warning passages and they say, see, you know, God will take away his, your salvation if you, you know, fall away from him or if you run from him or, or whatever. That's, that's not what's going on in the context. So the writer essentially makes an argument. It's a very Jewish flavored argument with a lot of Old Testament quotations, including the one we're going to look at in chapter 10, to, to remind these readers that Jesus Christ is far better than anything that Judaism had to offer. Judaism was the shadow. Christ is the substance. And so if you could summarize the, 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 you know, the, the theme of Hebrews in one simple statement, it would be this. It would be, 
uh, hold fast to your faith because Jesus is better than anything Judaism has to offer. So, you know, later on in chapter 10, he, he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Be strong. Hold your head high. Come what may. You know, if, if you end up getting arrested, so be it. Uh, but God is God. God is faithful. And you need to hang on to your faith. I mean, for 2,000 years, this is just three decades into the church, but here we are 2,000 years later, and many believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, have paid the ultimate sacrifice for standing firm for their faith. And there's special rewards in heaven for those who pay the ultimate price. And the challenge here is to trust God no matter what. Trust God no matter what. And so, by the way, let me just interject, we may very well in our own country, if the Lord tarries is coming, find ourselves in a similar situation where Christians are being rounded up and persecuted and imprisoned. I, I hope not. We pray not. But the fact of the matter is, all across this globe, brothers and sisters in Christ have been facing that type of persecution. In fact, next week in our continuing survey through the book of Acts, we're going to talk about persecutions. We're going to see Paul begins to face some tough uh, persecution. So, uh, in the immediate context of chapter 10, let's go back just a few chapters. In chapter 7... The author is arguing for the superiority of Christ over the Levitical priest within the Judaistic system because Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and which predates the Judaistic system. And, and then in chapters 8 and 9, he argues for the superiority of Christ's priestly ministry because it's based on a superior covenant, not the old Mosaic covenant, but the new covenant that Jeremiah the prophet predicted. And it's also Christ is superior because it's based on a his sacrifice is, is a superior sacrifice. And that's where we really land uh, today. In chapter 10, the first 10 verses, the author argues that the superior sacrifice of Christ accomplishes what animal sacrifices could never accomplish. And that is, it makes us perfect. So I want you to go back in your mind's eye to the old days before Christ in Israel when as part of their system, they had to find a lamb or a goat or even a turtle dove, some type of animal, and they had to bring and lay it on the altar. I mean, we read these things in Scripture and they somehow seem like, you know, not, not real. They almost seem like a fiction or a story. But for millions upon millions of God's people, for centuries, this was life. This was routine. And, I mean, how many of us in this room today, if we were required to bring a, a cow with us to church and, and sit here and slaughter it ourselves and put it on the altar, and so, how many of us would be able to do that? Now, thankfully, we don't have to do that, and that's what the writer is talking about here. But that begins to make the connection, I think, at least in my mind's eye, between the remembrance of the Lord's bodily sacrifice and really the significance of it. And, and, and Christ's ultimate sacrifice, as we just sang about the Lamb of God, perfect song for this text, uh, accomplishes what the animal sacrifices could never accomplish. And we're going to see how the writer makes that point. But what is it that the sacrifice of Christ accomplished? It makes us perfect. Now, remember what the words of Jesus were in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5.48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now let me ask you a question. 
How many of you in this room today are perfect? See, we have no theological, you know, astute people here today. Every one of us should raise our hands. It depends what we mean by perfect. So raise your hand just to make me feel better. How many of you in this room are perfect? Amen. There is a difference between positional perfection and practical perfection. And Jesus very plainly, as does the rest of Scripture, teaches us that the standard for entering heaven is perfection. And only by trusting in him and receiving his imputed righteousness, his imputed perfection, can we meet that standard. Left to ourselves, you know, we might be pretty good. Some of us might be better than others. Some of us in this room might be in the 98th percentile of goodness. Some of us in the 90th percentile. Uh, some of us in the 20th percentile. I won't name any names. But uh, we're all at different levels of practical perfection. Left to ourselves, no hope. Because even if you're in the 99.99999% of practical righteousness, that's not good enough. You know why? Because there's no sin in heaven and God is perfect and there's no sin in God. And Jesus plainly says you've got to be perfect just like God is perfect. And the only way to receive that perfection is by faith. When you trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone because of His shed blood on the altar, as we're going to talk about in a second, He gives you the righteousness that heaven demands. He gives you that perfection. That's called positional perfection. But then, of course, once we're saved, uh, a number of things happen. We become uh, part of the family of God, adopted in the family of God. We, be we become declared positionally righteous once for all. Our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells us. We're regenerated, reconciled to a holy God. Thirty some odd things happen at the moment you place your faith in Christ. And nothing can ever change that. But the fact of the matter is we still live on this sin-stricken earth, right? How many of you, uh, when the moment you trusted in Christ for salvation, were immediately taken off the earth to heaven? If anybody raises their hand at that question, I'm really puzzled because I see you here. Uh, and maybe you're just uh, an apparition. I don't know. No, we do, that doesn't happen. We wish it did. I mean, I would love that. But God has a purpose for us, and so we still live in this time, space, and matter consigned under sin, which means when we got saved, positionally we're right with God once for all, but we still have the old man, what Paul refers to as the old man, or the flesh, or uh, you know, just that part of us that is striving to fulfill the lust of the flesh, that does battle. And in Galatians 5, Paul talks about how the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary to one another. So the reason none of you raised your hand when I asked the unqualified question, how many of you are perfect, is we all know that in our flesh, in our practicality, we're not perfect. But when we sin, it's not that perfection of Christ that is being lived out. We can't ever sin and say, well, look what the new man made me do. <laughs> look what Christ made me do now that I'm born again and I'm a, I'm a new man. No, we can't, we, but we can blame it on the old man. We can say, oh, boy, I gave into the flesh. You know, I, I, I yielded to the flesh. And I, by doing so, I produced the fruit of the flesh. You know, jealousy, hatred, covetousness, lust, all those things. So, so what, 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 next time someone asks you that question, you should say, well, what do you mean by perfect? Which kind? In Christ, I'm perfect. In the flesh, as long as I'm topside this earth, yeah, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm trying to conform to the image of Christ. I'm trying to live out the new man in Christ. And someday, 
when this mortal puts on immortality or we go the way of all flesh, then, then yeah, we'll be completely perfect in every way. But the point is, only Christ's sacrifice can accomplish the one thing mankind needs most, and that is perfection. So let's take a look at the text, and I want to point out four reasons Christ's sacrifice is the greatest of all. And the first reason is, no other sacrifice can make us perfect, as we've been talking about. Let's look at verse 1. He says, for the law, meaning the whole Levitical system, having, been, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So the author is drawing a clear contrast here between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the sacrifice of Christ. The law, he says, was only a foreshadowing, a picture, a foretaste of the benefits that would come someday through the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. The Old Testament sacrifices looked forward to Christ. The millennial sacrifices will look back to Christ, but both of them were simply a shadow, an, uh, an example, much like the example that we're going to observe here momentarily that remind us of the one true sacrifice and the only sacrifice that can make us perfect. The law was a shadow that pictured all of the benefits that would come through the ultimate Lamb of God one day. But the law only made temporary provisions. It was incapable of making a final disposition on the question of sin. And the writer is going to go on to emphasize the perfecting effect of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on all believers. But the point he's making is that the, the very nature of the Mosaic law and its system of animal sacrifices made it impossible to bring believers into intimate relationship with God because it only dealt with the external. And it had to be repeated, as he's going to say. But when he talks about a shadow, remember what the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Colossians, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon, Sabbath. This is in the church age now, uh, one of Paul's prison epistles. And by now the church has, you know, left, I mean, the, the active church. There were some apostates, but the active church had left uh, the Jewish system. But many were still hanging on to the baggage. And he says, look, don't worry about that. Because those things were a shadow of the things to come. The substance is of Christ, Paul says. Someone has said, the shadow, then, is the preliminary outline that an artist may make before he gets to his colors. And the substance is the finished portrait. We have a lot of very talented artists in my family. And, um, and it's amazing when I see what my uh, girls have produced in terms of artwork. They've won awards and just, it's phenomenal. But often I'll stumble into the room and they'll be sitting on the couch and they'll be sketching and, and at first it doesn't look like much then when you see the finished product it's amazing and the author is saying that the law is no more than a preliminary sketch it shows the shape of things to come but the solid reality is not there it doesn't come until years later with the incarnation and ultimate sacrifice of christ but if we go back to the text remember he says that the, uh, the sacrifices can never make those who approach perfect. Remember, we're talking about two different kinds of perfect here. 
you know, a lot of times, you know, in sharing the gospel with people or, or speaking at conferences, you know, or even at funerals and places like that, people will make a comment. I'm sure you've heard it too. They'll come up and say, well, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than most. And I always want to go, bingo. You just articulated the problem. The fact that you're better than most is completely irrelevant. God does not grade on the curve. God's not going to say one day when you stand before the great white throne, well, this one, he was pretty good. You know, he's way, he's 99th percentile, so we'll make an exception and we'll let a 1% sinful person enter heaven. No, no. It's a zero-sum game. You've got to be perfect. So the minute someone says, I may not be perfect, bingo, that's the problem. You've got to be perfect. Not practically perfect. No one can accomplish perfection in that sense, this side of glory. But we can have the perfection of Christ given to us and charged to our account. That's what justification means. It's credited to our account. Right now, Adam's sin is accredited to our account. We're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 uh, Wherefore by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, and nobody escapes that description, all. That's Romans 5.12 But through Christ, the second Adam, who purchased our righteousness with his own shed blood, we can be made perfect in God's eyes. So if we go back to the text, notice he says, uh, for the law, having been a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things, can never make those who approach per perfect. Had perfection been made possible or obtainable through animal sacrifices, then those sacrifices wouldn't have had to be repeated again and again. I mean, think about it. Their very repetition proved the inadequacy of those sacrifices. By its very nature, the animal sacrifices were uh, anticipatory. They looked forward. Something's coming. We're going to have to keep doing these until, you know, the full ultimate sacrifice is made. The continuous sacrifices of the Jewish system, repeated endlessly year after year, prove the law's inability to perfect or make perfect. It's participant. The author of Hebrews actually makes this point earlier in chapter 7 when he said the law made nothing perfect. So Christ's sacrifice is the greatest sacrifice, first of all, because no other sacrifice could make us perfect. But then, secondly, no other sacrifice can cleanse our conscience. I want you to think about this. Again, I'm trying to put us back in our mind's eye to what life and culture and religion must have been like when it was the other side of the cross. Now, remember, these sacrifices and going through the motions didn't save anybody. Everybody from Adam forward is always saved the same way by faith. But the system provided a foreshadowing, a foretaste, looking forward to the ultimate Lamb of God. And they were required to do it, but it, it wasn't the ultimate end-all be-all. It didn't make anybody perfect. But moreover, another reason that Christ's sacrifice is the greatest is because no other sacrifice can cleanse our conscience. The Israelites never enjoyed the extent of freedom from sin's guilt that we do. I mean, think about it. The Day of Atonement reminded them year after year after year that their sins needed covering if they were to have continued fellowship with God. We don't have that yearly reminder. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like if we did. 
Because Jesus Christ's sacrifice makes us once for all acceptable to God. You remember that, that interesting dialogue that uh, Jesus had with Peter, and I guess there were many interesting dialogues between Jesus and Peter, but I'm talking about the one in the upper room. The very night Jesus was betrayed in the garden and within hours would be laid in a tomb. Uh, so they're in the upper room. Uh, Jesus, as the disciples arrive, tries to or washes their feet. Remember that? And Peter comes in, and Peter says to him, You'll never wash my feet. And then Jesus says in verse 8, right before the verse you see on the screen, Well, Peter, if I don't wash you, then you have no part with me. You're not in fellowship with me. So then Peter says, Oh, well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In fact, give me a full bath. <laughs> And then here's what Jesus said. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet because he's completely clean. See, that's what Christ's sacrifice does. It makes us completely perfect. Jesus, by the way, goes on to say, and you're all clean except for one of you. Who was he talking about? Judas. And we know Judas was not a believer. So if you go back to verse 2, verses 2 and 3, Again, the reason the animal sacrifices were insufficient is because, you know, if they could have made us perfect, they would have uh, not have ceased to be, would they, wouldn't they have stopped happening? For then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified, once made clean, as Jesus said to Peter, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. If the conscience was fully cleansed from the guilt of sin, the sacrifices would have ceased. Rather than purging the conscience, these sacrifices in the Jewish system uh, acted as a reminder of sins every year. I mean, think about it. The closer the Day of Atonement came each year, the more conscious the people became of their sins. And that's why, by the way, the Day of Atonement was not like the other festive days, but it was a, a day of deep mourning. The people stood acutely conscious of their sin and their condemnation by a holy and just God. And their only hope was that God might be gracious and accept the blood of bulls and goats as a temporary covering for their sins so that they would not come under immediate divine judgment. And on that day, according to Leviticus 16, there were two goats there was the sacrificial goat, and then there was a scapegoat. That's where we get that term straight out of Scripture. The one goat would shed his blood. That's what the Bible refers to as the goat of propitiation. By shedding that goat's blood, it symbolized the satisfaction of God's wrath that would occur when the ultimate Lamb of God shed his blood. Remember 1 John 2, 2. Wherefore by one, or let's see, 1 John 2, 2. He himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. So he sat, his blood satisfied the wrath of God against sin. And the, the Day of Atonement animal sacrifices prefigured that and represented that. So the, the goat that was sacrificed was the goat of propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God by his, by his shed blood. The, the goat that was the scapegoat, remember they would take the other goat after they cast lots to see which was which. Boy, if you're one of those goats, you're thinking... Please let me not be the propitiation goat. I want to be the scapegoat. They would take that goat way out into the wilderness and let it loose. And, and, and that symbolized the removal of guilt. Okay. And they had to do that every year. 
And the writer of Hebrews actually makes the point elsewhere that unlike those goats, today, because of the, the full sacrifice of Christ, the once for all sacrifice, we never have to worry about that goat of, that was called the goat of expiation. So propitiation satisfies God's wrath. The scapegoat is the goat of expiation. Ex meaning away, taking away our guilt. We never have to worry about that goat wandering back into the camp. Oh no, I, I, I'm guilty again, you know. It's once for all. So the yearly rituals in this Jewish system, a, a shadow system, if you will, served as a kind of annual reminder of sins. And the writer reminds us that Christ's sacrifice is the only one that can cleanse our conscience. In chapter 9, prior to this chapter, he says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For those who have received Christ's perfection by faith, that positional perfection we talked about, our sins no longer separate us from a holy God. David put it this way in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins our transgressions from us. Or Isaiah the prophet, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Or Micah the prophet, 700 years before Christ, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So do you understand that someday when we stand before a holy God, it's not going to be an evaluation of our sins, those are gone. It's going to be the blood of Christ that covers our sins. And, and because we're with Christ, in Christ, we get immediate access to heaven. Now, our sins on the practical level, as long as we're still topside this earth, do have a, an impact on our fellowship with God. It's the difference between being in the family of God once for all and being in fellowship with God. And our sins can grieve the Lord and and, and, and impede our fellowship with him. And that's the reason we need to, you know, constantly agree with God and say, oh, I blew it and I want to, you know, I want to be back in fellowship with you. But nothing positionally can change our identity in Christ because our sins have been forgotten. So Christ's sacrifice is the great sacrifice because no other sacrifice can make us perfect. No other sacrifice can cleanse our conscience once for all. And number three, no other sacrifice can pay for sin. And this is, is really the main point. The blood of bulls and goats could only provide a temporary covering for sin. The complete removal of sin awaited the coming of Christ, as prophesied by Isaiah. Remember in Isaiah 53, the servant, uh, you know, suffering servant passages there, um, servant songs. You know, uh, he was wounded for our transgressions and so forth. Um, but he's the one who took away the sin of the world when he took it upon himself, offering payment to God on our behalf. And that makes the full settlement of the sin question once and for all. And these sacrifices that the Jews were going through and, and Hebrews were contemplating reverting back to could never do that. They only pointed the way to the one ultimate sacrifice. He goes on to say, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Animal blood has no power to take away your sin. 
The word take away there is one word in, in Greek, and it's, it's used of a literal taking away or taking off. It's the same Greek word that's used when Peter, if you remember in the garden, cut off the ear of the high priest's slave. You remember that story when they came? It signifies, it's a pharaoh is the Greek word. Uh, I'm sorry, afereo, afereo. It signifies the complete removal. I mean, the slave's ear was not left dangling. I mean, it was on the ground, completely severed, no longer connected to that slave. In the same way, Christ's sacrifice completely removes our sin debt. It's no longer a factor in this situation. It's paid in full. And that's what, you know, is needed, and that's what these animal sacrifices couldn't do. They couldn't provide that complete removal of sin. We needed someone to pay our sin debt on our behalf. We owed a debt we could never pay. He paid a debt he didn't owe, right? That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of God in him. See, no other sacrifice can pay for our sins. I like the way the great W.H. Griffith Thomas uh, put it. He was a, a previous, or 19th century uh, scholar, British scholar. And when I was in seminary 30 years ago, we had a lecture series every year called the W.H. Griffith Thomas Lecture Series in honor of him, and a different speaker would come in. I always loved it because it was some great speakers. But W.H. Griffith, Griffith Thomas put it this way. The blood of animals cannot cleanse from sin because it's non-moral. See, animals don't have a soul. They're not moral or immoral beings. The blood of sinful man cannot cleanse because it's immoral. We're all sinful. We've all got the same disease in our DNA. It's called sin. But the blood of Christ alone can cleanse because it is moral. He is perfectly righteous. Yet, you know, came, you know, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So Christ's sacrifice is the great sacrifice because no other sacrifice can make us perfect. No other sacrifice can cleanse our conscience. No other sacrifice could pay for sin. And then finally, no other sacrifice is offered willingly. And the rest of this passage is just a, a repeated quotation of Psalm 40 that shows that what the animal, what the sacrifice of animals could not do, Jesus Christ accomplished when he sacrificed himself. The sacrifice of Christ is superior to animals because of the very nature of the sacrifice itself, which is, now listen, it was a willing sacrifice, a voluntary sacrifice offered in obedience to God. And the writer quotes here from David's Psalm, Psalm 40, and he says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. I've read that many, many times, but it took a long time before I really understood it in context. You know, through the years, I missed the significance of this. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Statement, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, shows that God had no lasting pleasure in this Levitical system of sacrifices and offerings. The sacrifice there refers to the burnt offering, which is one of those three uh, sweet-smelling offerings that represented the worship of God's people in response to his incredible benefits that he's given them, thank, thanksgiving offerings. And then the word offering 
is a reference to the sin offering. Leviticus 4, Leviticus 5. The sin offering is one of two non-fragrant offerings, either flour, if you couldn't afford an animal, or some kind of animal of varying types. Uh, these non-fragrant offerings are, were presented in response to sin, a sin offering. Now notice what Leviticus 5 says. If he's not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he, sh then he whose sins shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. But notice, he shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. See, sin offerings aren't supposed to be fragrant. There's nothing about sin that's good, and trying to cover it up with a pretty smell is, is an offense. If you go, so if you go back to the text, he says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, God has no pleasure. And, you know, citing Psalm 40 here as proof, the writer says, Animal sacrifices simply won't do to cover our sin. And there's a couple of reasons that's the case. First of all, animals come under the same curse of sin that's passed down on all creation because of Adam's sin, because of our sin, Genesis 3.14. And what is accursed cannot satisfy the demands of a holy God. We need a perfect sacrifice so that we can be made perfect. But another reason uh, that God does not desire these types of sacrifices and that they simply won't do, and this is the main point that the author is making, is that no animal ever went willingly to its death. Notice what he says, again quoting from Psalm 40. Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. That's talking about the Torah, the Old Testament law. This has always been written. Christ came to do your will, O God. He's stressing Christ's obedience to the will of the Father. Christ's willing obedience gave a special merit to his sacrificial death that places it in a class by itself. He's expressing our Lord's commitment to offer his body as a sacrifice to God because animal sacrifices wouldn't do the job and no animal just willingly climbed up on the altar. Jesus was not some dumb animal that offered his life unthinkingly. He consciously and deliberately offered his life in obedience to God's will. F.F. Bruce put it this way, The psalmist's words, Lo, I am come to do thy will, O God, sum up the whole tenor of the Lord's life in ministry and express, by the way, the essence of that true sacrifice which God desires. All kinds of verses show Christ's voluntary sacrifice. For example, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You ever thought about that? The coming of Christ in the world was an act of obedience to the will of the Father. It was the Father that gave His Son. Remember, God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In their eternity past at some point, you can't really have a point in time in eternity, but God, you know, God said, I'd like you to go down there and lay on the altar. Later on, in, in John's epistle, he writes this, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. And then Jesus himself tells us, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. This obedience characterized not only Christ's incarnation when God sent him and he obeyed but it, it characterized his entire life all the way up the Via Dolorosa to the cross that's when it reached its climax and you know, no animal can say this the animals involved in the sacrifice had no say in the matter they didn't say I'm going to lay down my life willingly 
And then, of course, in the garden, you remember the famous words of Christ when he says, Oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from him, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Describing it doctrinally in the epistles, Paul puts it this way, Being found in appearance as a man, Christ humbled himself, and what became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross, the ultimate Lamb of God. In Romans 5, I've talked about Romans 5 already this morning, but Paul comparing Adam to Jesus says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And we talked about that Wednesday. So back to the text. He's quoting Psalm 40 here. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Christ's sacrifice is the great once-for-all sacrifice because no other sacrifice is offered willingly. By the way, that's why the Old Testament gives instruction to bind the animal sacrifices with cords to the horns of the altar. See, any animal brought to the sacrifice would be overcome with fear at the scent of death and blood, and they would have seeked to re- or sought to return to the safety of the of the flock. And you know, that which has been dedicated to God could not be returned to the secular use, so it had to be secured to the horns of the altar. To pay the price. God could find no lasting pleasure in that which was sacrificed contrary to its own will. It had to be sacrificed willingly. And then just to close out the passage in the next couple of verses, he just repeats the same quote. In fact, he says, and this is the New King James, previously saying, uh, the King James says, above when he said, or the New American Standard said, after saying the above, or the ESV says, when he had said the above, so he's just repeating himself, he repeats the same quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had no pleasure in them, and then he gives a little commentary, he kind of expounds on it, which are offered according to the law, and then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and then he gives the commentary here, he takes away the first, that he may establish the second. In other words, In setting aside the Old Testament sacrifices, God brought in the once-for-all ultimate sacrifice that would satisfy God. And then the final verse really is the key verse that sums up our whole discussion this morning. By that will, the will of Christ our Savior, we have been sanctified, literally positionally set apart once for all, through the offering of of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it's easy, I think, for us to get our hands around the shed blood of Christ. I mean, we deal with blood all the time. We scratch or get a cut. And we sing about the blood, all those great hymns about the blood. But how often do we stop and think about the physical body of Christ laying on the altar, accomplishing what no animal could ever accomplish? And he gave it willingly. That's the great sacrifice. It's great because no other sacrifice can make us perfect. No other sacrifice can cleanse our conscience. We never have to worry about our sin shutting the doors of heaven ever again. If you've placed your faith in Christ. It's not automatic. You have to receive it by faith. But once you've believed the gospel that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, it's done. It's a great sacrifice because no other sacrifice can pay for our sin. And ultimately because no other sacrifice is offered willingly. So the takeaway 
is a pretty easy one on a morning like today because we're going to be celebrating communion. So the takeaway is remember his sacrifice. Yes, remember the shed blood, remember his body, remember the whole, all of it. And we want to do this until he comes, looking forward to his return. But today, as we close out and we pray together, I want you to really, in the quietness of the moment, in your own personal heart between you and the Lord, pretend like there's nobody around you, put a box between you and the person sitting next to you, and just really focus on the greatness of his sacrifice and thank God for it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this incredible sacrifice. The sacrifice... Uh, to end all sacrifices. The one that accomplishes what animal sacrifices never can. The sacrifice of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have redemption. And only in Christ. And Lord, if there's one here today that has never trusted in Jesus as their only hope of salvation, Lord, we we pray that your Holy Spirit would get a hold of that person, whether watching on a computer or their phone or here in the room, just get a hold of them until in simple childlike faith they come to recognize they're a sinner who needs a Savior and that only Jesus can save them. And for those of us who already know you, Father, may we leave today with a fresh appreciation of just what all was involved on a hill outside of Jerusalem that day when Christ shed his blood for us, and it's his precious name that we pray. Amen.